Heavenly Father, you are glorious to behold, and um, we wonder at who you are. We wonder that you sent us Christ, and we thank you that you have um, called us to him and that you have caught us up with your glory. We pray we would not change our glory for that which does not profit. We pray that you would teach our hearts that your glory is worthy of our worship and that our hearts can find their greatest joy as we worship you. And I pray you would glorify your name during this talk. Amen. Okay. Um, how many of you have seen Dude Perfect before? Raise your hand. Okay. Some. Husbands showed you maybe? Okay. Dude Perfect, if you don't know what it is, is um, it is these five A&M guys that do these crazy, crazy acts of sports glory. And the most famous one, or one of the most famous ones in our house, is one involving um, Johnny Menzel. And these five A&M guys basically gather, have garnered up enough excitement over um, and enough of a following that they got Johnny Menzel to agree to do this stunt for them. And they film it, and they post it online. And what happens is he goes up into the very nosebleeds of Kyle Field. I mean, the nosebleed section, the $5 tickets. And he stands there with a football on one of the little platforms that you hope you don't fall off of at a game. And they put in the middle of the field, way down below, like on the green part of the field, a basketball goal. And... He is way up here with a camera, and they have cameras way down there, and they give him a football. And he gets this football, and he kind of gets his hands just ready, just right, and he throws the football in this perfect arch that goes right swishing into this dot of a basketball goal that you can hardly see from high up above. And you don't even wonder if it's... um, if it's been altered or whatever, photoshopped, because you can tell by their reaction, they're like, ah! I mean, they're screaming, he's screaming, everyone's excited, and it's glorious. And these moments of sports glory are a thing of our culture. Um, they, they say on their website, they have 4 million subscribers, 480 million views, that's 1.5 billion minutes watched, 2,761 years of minutes of their own coverage of different glorious sports events that most of which they put on themselves. Um, so something deep within our hearts longs for glory. We look for glory and we can find traces of glory all around us, not just in sports. You can see it in the pastels of Monet's water lily in the riff of a Jimi Hendrix, um, song. You can see it just everywhere. You can even see it in the six feet of DNA that's so tightly uh, wound together in every single of the 70 trillion cells in your body. So there's glory everywhere, but all of it, as we know, is just a hint. It's just a whisper. It's just a shadow um, of the everlasting glory of God. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about today as we talk about John 2. Um, We see in Scripture that God delights in His great glory in His name and that His name is way more glorious than anything else we might be tempted to worship. 
and it's clear through all of scripture. We see him delight in the glory of his name in creation when he says it is good. We see him delight in his name at the Tower of Babel when he won't let those people make a name for themselves. We see him delight in his name at the Exodus when he will not let his people be slaves. We see him delight in his great name and in his glory when he gives Moses the law. Um, and Moses must shield his face from his glory. We see him delight in his glory when he builds the temple. In all of the Old Testament, we see that God has one great purpose, and it is the glory of his great name. So we can't understand the events that we studied today and talked about in your groups in John 2 until we really understand that God is about the business of his own glory. Um, Piper says that God's overwhelming passion is to exalt the value of his glory. To that end, he seeks to display it, to oppose those who belittle it, and to vindicate it from all contempt. It is clearly the uppermost reality of his affections. He loves his glory infinitely. Um, And as we'll talk about later and throughout, his glory isn't just self-serving. It draws us in as well and benefits us. That's part of his glory. So in John chapter 2, we see Christ loving the glory of God. And by loving, I mean both mirroring, mirroring it and zealously defending it. Um, Jesus had been described, we know in John 1, as um, the word that became flesh dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory is the only son as from the father, full of grace and truth. And Hebrews 1, 3 confirms that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the the universe by the word of his power. So we get the sense that Christ, if he didn't uphold, if he didn't care about the glory of God, that the ground for our joy in the glory of God would be gone. In other words... If God's glory were compromised, if it wasn't worth Christ's attention, it wouldn't be worth ours. And the enjoyment and display of God's glory reflected in Christ can therefore be really the only foundation of our own happiness. Um, So in other words, as God's pursuing his own glory, it's not just him saying, worship me, worship me, because it's all about me. What he's doing, it's like this synonymous effort. Darwin said, you know, that God's naming himself I am means, in other words, that he has unstoppable goodness on the move. And so he's not just wanting to hear praise from his son and hear praise from his people because he's selfish. Rather, God knows that's the only lasting experience of joy that we'll ever have, that it will only be found in his glory, in that goodness on the move. So I'm just saying this because it's important for us to have a good understanding of that as we dive in um, to the passage. So the events of chapter 2, what we're seeing isn't just a wedding and isn't just Christ having a fit at the temple. It's a lot more than that. Um, It's Christ revealing his father and the glory of his father. And it's Christ revealing who God really is. Um, In fact, the whole life of Christ, from the birth in the barn to the wedding at Cana, all the way to the resurrection, is showing God's glory in human flesh. And um, we see in chapter 2 that that glory takes place with both abundance and in desolation. 
Okay, so let's talk about the wedding at Cana. Jesus performs the first of his nine miracles. Y'all probably talked about this in your group, that um, in the Gospel of John, there are nine miracles, but we call them something different in John than we do in the Synoptic Gospels. The Synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And when they talk about a miracle, they use the word dynamite, which sounds like dynamite, which is an act of power. Um, but actually, John uses a different word, samaya, which means a sign. So John wants us not just to see, oh, look, Jesus was powerful. He wants us to look at the, the thing exhibited by that power and take m- even more from that. He wants us to see some symbolism, and he sees um, these signs as important because they reveal the glory of God. So... The meaning of this sign at Cana um, reveals God's glory in abundance shared with us. So the Canaan wedding here shows God's glory in abundance shared with us. Um, As Jesus orders the servants eventually, and hopefully y'all talked all about the dynamic between Mary and Jesus. I'm not really going to touch much on that right now, although there's much to be had, and I'm not saying it's not important. But we're going to skip right ahead to when Jesus does go ahead and and order the wine and get it ready. As he orders those servants to lug out those huge, enormous ceremonial jugs used for purification, he's doing more than just making a beverage inside of a functional container. There's much more that he's doing. He's using those jars and he's claiming them for an elevated purpose, not just cleansing but a joyful celebration. And so he reveals that there is more glory to be had from their worship out of his abundance. And um, these jars were enormous. They were almost the size of a man. And it wasn't that there would have been just enough wine for every person. You get the feeling that there would have been too much wine. There would have been leftovers. I mean, there was just way more than they needed. And you get the feeling, too, it's pretty clear, this isn't just good enough wine. This is the best wine anyone has ever tasted. It's the good wine that has been kept until now. And so Jesus here is doing something more than just some awesome magic show. He is changing the good water of the old covenant into the delicious wine of the new covenant found in Christianity in him. So, in the repurposing of these ceremonial jars, it could be that Jesus was showing us the need for cleansing to be done with and that we can move to a life now of worshipful celebration. The wait is over and his kingdom has come. Okay, so um, I want to talk for a minute about the laws because I'm going to tell you what my temptation was when I was writing this. I kind of wanted to jump on the bandwagon of... um, Jesus came and he's throwing those laws out because those laws were kind of bad because they would only ever just show a little shadow. And so what he's doing is he's showing them how bad the law was and how great he is in comparison. And that's not really what he's doing at all. And as I kind of delved in more, I thought, oh, yeah, that's not at all theologically right whatsoever. Because these laws, the ceremonial cleansing that God had ordained for his people was for a reason. It wasn't bad. It was good. It was to give them dependence on him. 
It was to show them their inability. It was to show them their neediness. It was to show them that apart from him, they had no holiness. In front of him and his holiness, they could see that they were utterly wicked. So that contrast that the law brought was really, really good. Um, And so um, they were really designed in that way to bring glory to God's name, right? So the law was to give glory. Um, And so it wasn't that the law was bad. It was just, uh, in fact, Paul looked back and said that it was something that was good. It was holy. It was just that the law wasn't it. It wasn't enough. And so just like um, my wifeness isn't, isn't defined by my marriage license, there also has to be some sort of relationship. So too, had God always intended for the law to be kind of a declaration of who these people were in relationship to him. Um, So this law was intended to bring joy in relationship. Um, And in Psalm 119, you see David kind of point out the the law doing what what it should be doing in in our hearts. Psalm 119.25, give me life according to your word. Um, Verse 37, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Give me life according to your ways. 93, I will never forget your precepts. By them you've given me life. 156, great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. So there was life to be had even in the law, but it wasn't enough. So what Jesus does is he comes to this wedding and he and this sign is basically saying, you want life? These jars were made to make you see your need for me. And hopefully you see that that wasn't enough. Look at what the law is becoming in, in me. I'll bring the law to the fruition and pay the penalty of your falling short of the law. Have me and get life. We know that the living word who became flesh will later say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Okay, so I just learned there's such a thing as um, a bacon air inhaler. And the website calls it bacon air. It says, we call it Bacon Air, and it's a revolutionary new product that combines the deliciousness of bacon with the unrivaled health benefits of 95% pure Himalayan oxygen. Um, Without knowing the mercy, the forgiveness, and the person of Jesus Christ, and without a heart of worship, the law can only be Bacon Air. It's just a whiff of a delicious feast of a relationship with the Lord. Um, I can't call the Lord bacon. I can't go there. But Okay, so this sign at the wedding was this unveiling of Jesus' mission. Um, it was the announcement that Christ had come. It had kind of all been not so public just yet, as you'll remember. This is a public event. Um, and I, I know you remember when... Princess Kate and Prince William got married. That wasn't even like a really coronation, but we'll just kind of call it that for the sake of my illustration. When they got married, there were all sorts of interesting merchandise like coffee mugs and uh, royal pez and um, royal toilet cover decorations with their faces on it. And I can promise you they did not supply those to the people. I can promise you they didn't buy them. And they took no part in that. But here what we see as this king comes in is that 
He is the one bringing the celebration. He is the one supplying the wine. He is the riches of the feast. And so it reminds us of Ephesians 2 verses 4 through 8. Listen to all the kind things that God does for us. God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, raised up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ, so that in the coming ages we might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. So this glorious kingdom of Christ, the good wine that's come at last, is a glorious gift of God for us. And this wine and this party is just the beginning. That particular party at Cana is done. That wine is all dried up and empty. But in due time, there will be another feast. And that will be a wedding feast. And we will all be there. When the wine overflows and the celebration doesn't end, the marriage supper of the Lamb, when we, the bride of Christ, will be with him forever and ever in a permanent relationship with God. That's glory. And that is his gift to us. And that is what he wants us to see as he changes water into wine. More than just the beverage, he wants us to see the relationship. Okay, so then we follow Jesus into the temple, and it comes as no surprise that Jesus continues to reflect the glory of God here, too. The temple was the focal point of the nation. It was just a national way of life. It's almost hard to find anything like it that would compare in our culture today. Um, Maybe football, but not really. Um, And we see in Isaiah 56 that God's heart from the beginning, was to bring all of the nations to himself. So he he had these Jewish people as his people. He would be their God. They would be his people for a reason. And it was to bring the nations to himself. He says, I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be a house of prayer For all peoples, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So from the beginning, God intended to use this temple and the Jews to draw people to himself, to his glory. God's glory is about bringing in. And so here we are in the outer courts where Jesus comes with his whip. And that was the very farthest that a Gentile could possibly go. That was the the closest in to the temple that a Gentile could possibly ever reach. And you saw what it looked like. There was animal poop everywhere. There was money jangling about. And people were impoverished just trying to change their money to buy the sacrifice they needed to buy. And so <clears throat> it, was a, it was a tragedy. It robbed from the glory of God. And so that, out of that heart, Jesus comes and he is brokenhearted as he sees the scene before him. Um, It was a commercial religious circus. And how could the glory of God be spread to the nations like that? Okay, so this this business was like a mafia network. And um, it was more like that than a worship location because money changers and 
Um, vendors paid top dollar to the religious leaders to be able to stay there. So um, this is this is um, Jesus cleaning out the temple is most an indictment on the leaders of the temple. Um, okay, a tiny joke. It's a little corny. A couple were sitting in their living room sipping wine, and um, out of the blue, the wife says, I love you. And the husband says, is that you or the, or the wine talking? And she says, it's me talking to the wine. <laughs> and so what we see here is that the Jews are talking to the temple. They love the wrong thing. They love the building. They love the money. They love the status. But their hearts are hardened to the glory of God. There is no worship. Um, the leadership had divorced the t- worship of God um, from the temple of God, and they ravaged it of its glory. Um, and remember, God's glory is most understood not as a word on a page, but as a relationship. Not as a building in a city, but as a relationship. He is relational in his glory. Um, okay, when Solomon prayed for the temple, a, a prayer of... Um, dedication to the temple as soon as he prayed this is what happened fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the lord filled the temple and the priest could not enter the house of the lord because the glory of the lord filled the lord's house when all the people of israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the lord on the temple they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the lord saying for he is good his steadfast love endures forever God's glory should have produced worship even these many years later during Jesus' time from his people. That was the same worship expected from his people now, but it is gone. It is desolate. It is as if the Jews had locked, they thought they had locked up God in there and could manipulate him. Remember when your toddler, when you give the, the like banana and the toddler would go and watch you and you go and get it and go, no, no, no. And then you go, okay, here you go. And he goes, because what did he know you were going to do? Come back and get it. And they are, the Jewish leaders are toddlers in the temple. They think that they have God in that box. And um, they think that they are, in a way, they are really holding God hostage, in, so to speak. They had no inkling, ironically, that God's glory was much more present, pumping through the veins of the very person who had just offended them. Um, So remember in Ezekiel, the glory of God leaves the temple. It departs from the temple for one reason, because the people were worshiping idols. And no longer are the people going to the Asherah poles and all of that crazy stuff that happened in that time of Ezekiel. But there's... They've just found new idols, and it's their own money, their own hearts. So the Jewish leadership is is guilty. Um, Paige Benton Brown says that the temple itself was a great preparation for a greater glory that was coming in the fullness and finality of atonement and forgiveness. It's supposed to increase longing, not independence. The Jews are in love with the building, not God. It's more bacon air. So Jesus, the glory of God in the flesh, unapologetically enters into this temple and he has absolute authority and severity. He exposes their irreverence and with every overturned table and whip of his cord and scattering of coins, 
He's totally justified to do what he does because God was not in that box. His name was being defamed, and that was happening before the nations. Um, in John 10.10, 10, Jesus says, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly, like the abundance of the new wine at Cana in the wedding feast. This temple situation here stands in stark contrast to that abundance of relational richness that can be found in true worship of God. Um, okay, so have you ever read The Pilgrim's Regress? It's kind of C.S. Lewis's response to the book, The Pilgrim's Progress. And in it, there's a character named John, and he's kind of on this journey to find heaven. And as he does, he encounters this character named Superbia. And at first, Superbia seemed a skeleton. But as he drew nearer, he saw that there was indeed skin stretched over its bones and eyes flaming in the sockets of its skull. It was scrabbling and puttering to and fro on what appeared to be a mirror. But it was only a rock scraped clean of every speck and dust of dust and fiber and polished by the continued activity of this famished creature. Excerpts from its song sang, And though I starve of hunger, it is plainly seen, I have eaten nothing common or unclean. I have fasted, I have by fasting purged away the filthy flesh, and now, though I am barren, yet no man can doubt, I am clean, and my iniquities are blotted out. So, really, what we see in that is what we see of the Jewish leadership no relationship whatsoever with their glorious God, no need whatsoever for his cleansing power, working it all out on their own. Um, And so chapter two really is all about worship, the Jews, and let's face it, we too must determine what we worship. Is it a system, a denomination, a moral code, a neat and tidy set of rules, the almighty dollar, a clean house, uh, our spouse's approval, the right body, whom do we worship? Because God's purpose when creating us was that we glorify him by enjoying him forever. He not only made us in his image, he made us in the image of his glory. That's 1 Corinthians 11. Piper says that God is most glorified in us when we're satisfied in him. So, Our greatest satisfaction will come when we join Jesus reflecting the glory of God and enjoying the glory of God in relationship. Okay, so it's easy for us to slip into drudgeries like the drudgery like the Jews were in the turn of the millennia. We get distracted too, and we forget our continual need for God, if we're honest. We do. And our hearts really are like those outer courts of the temple. Um... So much crowds around in our hearts, like the hustle and bustle of each of the vendors' carts. Um, I've been convicted, even while I've sat there in worship, collective worship on a Sunday morning, convicted of the own greed, my to-do list in my heart, the envy in my heart, the really, let's call it hatred, because that's what it is, self-pity and anger swirling around any given moment at my kind of lackluster efforts at worship. Um, Piper says the great hindrance to worship is not that we're a pleasure-seeking people, but we're willing to settle for such pitiful pleasures. Um, We'll come back to that 
to our hearts at worship. We're going to move on. Um, when Jews are angry, they ask Jesus who he thinks he is, that he could do all the things he did. And he gives them that mysterious three days answer. And they're kind of like, okay, that doesn't make any sense. And uh, he doesn't really go to the effort to explain it. I kind of want him to spell it out for him so that it's all written out so that they can later on go, oh, that's what. But even if he had, they didn't have the ears to hear it. And what I love is that he gives them no um, explanation whatsoever because really think about it. Cleaning out the temple didn't need an explanation. That should have been done. They were the ones who owed the explanation to the glory of God here in the flesh before them. Um, So what... Jesus does later on in, and this is referred to in Luke in chapter 20, he prophesies that the temple's going to crumble to the ground. It's going to be destroyed. And he says this as he's looking with his disciples out at this glorious thing that is the temple. It was staggering. It was five football fields long, y'all. That's far. And some stones were 67 feet long, seven and a half feet high, and nine feet deep. I don't even know how they carry that, but they did. And so when Jesus said that temple was going to crumble to the ground, that's staggering. That would have been like if in Wall Street in 73, you had told uh, all the New Yorkers that those twin towers were going to be crumbled to the ground in 2001. No one would believe it. Um, But the reason that Jesus prophesied that temple crumbling to the ground, there's really only one reason, and it's this. That temple was obsolete. As he departed from the temple the last time, To the Mount of Olives, Jesus says, your house is left to you desolate. It's not his. It's it's not needed anymore. And 2 Corinthians 3.10 says, indeed, in this case, what had once had glory had come to have no glory at all because because of the glory that surpasses it. Jesus was the glory that surpassed the temple. Um, So... Uh, one quote from a man named uh, Milne, he says, the action of Jesus is more than an example of prophetic protest against the Jews' corrupt religion. It's a sign of the end of all false religion. So when Jesus enigmatically walks in and talks about the temple being torn down and raised up in three days, he's really proclaiming that the time of this sacrifice is over. God had been making a time, um, a preparation for this moment for all eternity. In Jeremiah 31, 31, I love this. A time is coming when God will make a new covenant with the house of Judah. I will put my law in their minds and I will write on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. A day when we don't need those ceremonial huge jars anymore to clean this up. Um, after Jesus came, the purpose had no purpose. Uh, the temple had no purpose. And um, when he turned into the wine and cleaned out the temple, he announced that our focus must shift inward. It's spiritual and it's on Jesus. Um, So no longer does that animal in the temple need to bear the brunt of our sin, but Jesus on the cross in agony was the one who did that. Um, 2 Corinthians 3 describes the old covenant like a veil over the faces of those worshiping God. And Christ took away that veil at the wedding and um, all throughout his ministry. I most picture everything that Christ did was like another veil coming off over the faces of these people who had only this um, old covenant to relate to God. And um, 
2 Corinthians 3 says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Spirit, from the Lord who is the Spirit. So back to our own hearts and the craziness that happens even within um, worship. Um, When our worship feels empty, when our worship feels lackluster, when it feels a little anemic, what can we recall? I, I like this verse, 2 Corinthians 3. I think I put it on there. I hope I did. Um, we can recall, we don't need to look inwardly like, oh, what should I do? Maybe if I just, or maybe I should. Instead, it's that we need to look outwardly to Christ when our worship is that way. Um, look at that underline where the spirit of the Lord is. There's freedom in worship. I'm going to insert. We were dying slaves. Now we're free daughters. We're not slaves to sin or guilt anymore as we worship. We and our worship are being transformed. Do you see that underline? We can't muster up the goodness to worship as we should. We can come as we are, bringing our distractions and our sin to God as we worship. Not feeling guilty that they're there, but bringing them before him. um, Because we know he's working on us. And then this other... This comes from the Lord who is a spirit. Y'all, our worship comes from the Lord because we are caught up in his glory. It's a reason to praise God even more. We're not alone as we develop our worshiping hearts for God. He's given us the spirit who bears with us, dwells with us, teaches us, fills us, intercedes for us, sanctifies us, renews us, produces fruit in us, and so much more. That's glory. So um, just in closing, if you think about a trip to the Grand Canyon, you don't go there because you should. Um, Some of us might with mom guilt. I should take my kids there. But that's not really why we go. We go there because it's glorious to behold. And we worship God not because we ought, but because Christ revealed to us in John 2 that his Father is worthy. He's worthy because he moved toward us in love through Christ to enjoy his glory with him. And the Holy Spirit makes God the source of our greatest delight and meaning from one degree of glory to another. Let's pray. God, we have capacities for joy which we can scarcely imagine. Capacities made purely for the enjoyment of God. Please awaken them no matter how long they've lain asleep in us. We pray for your quickening power in our hearts that our eyes will behold your glory that is all around us. Thank you for Christ and for the way he zealously defended and reflected your glory. And we pray that we would do the same. Amen.